Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yorika Talbo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck, you've come to the right place. Every week I sit down with a creative entrepreneur and an artist to discuss the who, what, where, when, and how of their journey. And as always, please remember to like, subscribe, and share this episode with a friend. Today I'm sitting down with Kit Martin, artist, academic, programmer, and author of a brand new book, The Zen of Corona. Kit, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great, Uri. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well as well, in spite of my circumstances where I can't see very well. But other than that, things, uh, <laughs> things are going well. How, how are things in Chicago these days? Uh, we got a balmy 45 here, so it's going pretty well. Hmm. Excellent. <laughs> How has, so I, I asked this actually of most guests nowadays, just because of where our circumstances are, but how are, how has the, the last nine months been for you in Chicago? Yeah, uh, it's been a big transition because uh, my main line work is working in these kind of open creative academic labs in Northwestern. Mm -hmm. We all pool together and sit in a room with laser cutters and 3D printers and coding and Kind of all piled up on top of each other uh, and obviously that came to a screeching halt so it went from being a super social world or ideas go flying to hey let's talk over zoom yeah zoom's good <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah yes it has <laughs> excellent has anything i guess started op opening up a little bit at, at the university campus or is it still like how is how is the i guess this fall semester been yeah, they, they stayed on mostly lockdown. A few professors that had to did like hybrid in person. Um, if you're in a lab that has to be there, RNA sequencing or something, yeah. you're back on, you can be back on campus, super tight regulations, very little interaction. Yeah, so uh, still pretty tight. Uh, probably going to continue doing that up through the spring uh, next year. Um, yeah. Okay, good to know. All right, so for my listeners who are less familiar with your work, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm building computational environments for kids. So that's uh, design work to make it seem appealing, get people engaged with it, make cute ants, fuzzy creatures. Um, and then we undergird it with some sort of pedagogical value. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you get cute creatures to not deforest all the flowers? Um, how do you maintain energy cycles in a system? Um, how do you prevent violence from overtaking your ant colonies? These sorts of things. So we built these cute environments and then teach life lessons using them. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. That sounds that sounds really exciting. Is that the so the the programs you're building? Because I know you mentioned before that you also work in VR. Is it is what kind of program is it going to be ultimately? Oh yeah. So I work in a couple of languages. Uh, okay. One of the ones we develop here is NetLogo. So that's a, uh, a language for building these interactive models where kids can look at the code and change how it works. You can make a game in it. That's usually what I make and they interact with it. Another one is Unity. So Unity is used for uh, making mobile games, but also the premier place to make VR and augmented reality. 
So I released a meditation app called Refuge VR earlier this year in Unity. You sit there, you hear voices, pretty people talk to you about the meaning of life. It's kind of a full sensory experience in VR. You don't do very much, but it's supposed yeah. to give you a moment away from other things, a virtual reality temple or something like that. That's great. I mean, that's that's what kind of meditation is supposed to be is is experience whatever it is around you and, and reflection. So that, that sounds uh, that sounds really cool. Okay. So you have a very interesting intersection of let's say academia, programming, and the arts. So how I know this is going to be like a big question, but how did that all happen? Yeah. So I, as a kid, I had a very like boot camp for the Renaissance man sort of upbringing. Um, <laughs> I was what they call homeschooled, but instead it was just kind of not schooled. So um, here's food, here's water, here's a bed. Um, go take care of yourself. If you would like books, we can probably find books. Um, maybe teach yourself programming or something. So I just kind of read and like sat in this kind of embryonic state for years at a time. Yeah. Sucking in art and history and literature. And then I went to college and dabbled in visual arts and history and programming um, at Bard College in upstate New York. So it's rich experiences on all three fronts. Mm -hmm. After school, I went to the IBM Watson Fellowship and studied ants. So I built computer models of ants in places like Brazil and Senegal. And then I drew pictures of ants and it was a photography project. So I took really close portraits of ants. Yeah. To, Originally, it was for the paper, right? I had to get a good picture of the ant. But then it was like, no, I'm just doing portrait photography of an alien species in a faraway land. This is kind of cool. <laughs> so actually, sorry, I want to pause you for one second. So ants have come up a few times already in our conversation. Yeah. Is it just coincidence or is there, like, is there something that you particularly find interesting about ants? Uh, well, yeah, it's not coincidence, but I do find them particularly interesting. Um, so I've always liked them. So in high school, when Wikipedia started coming out, you would find me in the ant section, like, oh, I'll write the Atacephalotus section. I'll write the Safari ant section. And people are like, yeah. oh, okay, why is this kid writing? There's a lot of grammatical errors here, but <laughs> certainly knows a lot about Safari ants. Uh, maybe a little less autobiography in here and more citations, yeah. but pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah, I always find them fascinating because they're like, uh, complex systems, right? So you have a thing which is basically an inanimate object, no mm -hmm. real sense of its universe around it, but this really simplified bio robot can organize like agriculture, they tend sheep, they build bridges, they have, you know, second largest biomass of a single species on the planet next to us, Leo. You know? So it's like, we have this alien force living among us. So it's just like, why don't we talk to them or understand them kind of feeling? Yeah, okay, wonderful. Okay, sorry, so please continue. So you've, you're studying ants. <laughs> I'm studying ants and agent-based modeling, that's the systems, the simple system stuff, and taking their picture. Um, and then I landed in 2009 back in the United States and uh, tried to integrate into normal work. So I worked, worked for a foreclosure loan provisioner. So I had mm. to stamp, red stamp people's houses being closed during the people deep recession, I realized I don't like that. That was not. <laughs> <laughs> not your thing, okay. <laughs> uh, I didn't fall in love there. So, you know, I had these, this huge library of ant photography. I built this agent-based model. I'd gone and studied all these 
stuff about human and other organisms, social systems. Um, and they just kind of keep rotating around each other. Like the ant stuff kept pulling me into programming. Photography kept pulling me into design. Uh, I kept printing things out and putting them on my walls and begging people to take them away from me. And please, I don't want, you don't even have to pay me, just have this picture. And they're like, but it's of an ant. I'm not gonna put that in my coffee shop, no. <laughs> but like the, the practice of each of these things keeps getting better and the momentum a little faster. Yeah. Uh, the number of people using these systems kept improving. Went and worked overseas for a while, took more pictures of ants, built more computational programs to analyze more data. Uh, that started taking over. People pay you more for crunching numbers than they do taking pictures of people. But um, yeah, that kept, that's kind of like the trajectory of how it kept moving, you know? Okay. So I guess we, and let's see, let's talk about your time overseas, particularly in South Sudan, because it sounds like there's a few different projects you were working on that sound particularly interesting, and you've spent a number of years there. Yeah. So what what initially made you want to move over to Sudan, and, and what was that experience like? Uh, well, I'll have to make it a coincidence of ants once again. Um, so, <laughs> so circa 2012, I was in Minnesota pursuing uh, my first PhD, which was in entomology. Uh, we had, I had like a conflict, so I left that program with a master's mm -hmm. uh, international development. So how to use bugs to improve agriculture, um, make people's lives better, pest management, that sort of thing. Um, it was from a policy school, so a lot to do with it economics of it, statistics, that kind of thing. Uh, but at the end of it, I applied to ant course, which is a really awesome course for anyone who loves ants. You gather the world's experts of ants in a random location on the planet where ants are good. Uh, and then you look at ants through a microscope and you go to the field and collect ants. And then you just talk about ants. Mm -hmm. So this year in 2012, it was in Uganda. Um, so I you know, packed up my bags from the PhD, flew to Uganda to go to this course two weeks just in heaven, looking at ants, identifying their weird taxonomic structures, talking about ants all day, uh, and it finished. And I was like, well, I don't have a PhD back there. I got my master's. I don't have like a job lined up. I'm sitting in Uganda. Uh, my parents had worked in Sudan when I was a kid, so I kind of knew something about there. And I was like, I have this degree in agriculture and there's all these people who need new agriculture after a war. and Maybe I'll just take a bus to South Sudan. Like, I, why not? Mm -hmm. um, so I, from Kampala to Juba, it was like $25 and 24-hour bus ride. Um, <laughs> most of it's waiting at the border, but anyways. So ruddy roads, just like deep holes, rain, you know, the whole classical uh, terrible bus journey. Uh, got there with some chickens and some goats. Got out in Juba. To paint the picture, Juba is like... It looks like a cowboy town, right? Like you have a donkey walking down this side of the street, ruddy roads, like <laughs> everyone has a gun. Mm -hmm. uh, bars are, are really dangerous because people walking out with Kalashnikovs and guns is a little bit unnerving. Um, yeah, so was there, um, was like, hey, I am here. My shingle is, I do agriculture and pests. Do you have pests problems? <laughs> And someone said, no, we don't have pest problems, but we do need to put on a large event. Would you like to 
would you like to like do logistics and stuff? And I was like, well, I speak Arabic and sure, I can find you air conditioners and negotiate contracts. So I did that for a bit. And then the guy ran and was like, you're really good at this. Um, what do you want to do here in South Sudan? It's like, well, I kind of think we want to start an agricultural revolution. So, and he was like, that's so exciting. Like, that's what I'm going to do next. So I hooked up with him and <laughs> started building a, a large farm, uh, like looking at like how to make a farmer cooperative, 100 acre farm, because all the food's coming from Uganda. Mm -hmm. Big problem there is pests. So we started talking about pest management and farmer cooperatives. I teamed up with an old uh, friend of mine, Mika Tuning, and we did these massive interviews with farmers. Hey, like, what's your big problem? They're like, well, let me tell you about monkeys. If you're farming here, the biggest problem is the monkeys have very strong tactics. What they'll do is they'll send a small squad at you from the front and distract you while the larger fast monkeys go flank from the left and steal all your corn. But then they have another group in a trench. So after you're chasing the flanking group, the third one comes in and clears you out. And so what we need is like better tactics to fight the monkeys. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you imagine like a civil war battle here with the cavalry and all, you're like, okay, yeah. this monkeys are hard to deal with. Yeah, that's so how do you how do you deal with monkeys in the agriculture? Yeah, so you have, you have two basic problems. You have the quaily quaily birds, which is like this large flock. It comes yeah. over from different lands, it'll just wipe out, eat everything. Imagine locusts, but the size of birds. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to have someone on a guard tower with a rope and a rock spinning it whenever these birds come around to keep them off the grain. But meanwhile, the monkeys are always lurking in the forest. And so what you need to do is you need to outflank the outflanking. They're not particularly uh, good at like reorganizing. So that if a triple flank fails, yeah. They don't have the quadruple flank or the somersault backflip flank or the tunneling flank. Like they, they can only go so many levels of order of complexity. So eventually you can just keep putting more guards and more random locations and you can eventually beat their strategy. But it's very complicated and takes a lot of people to like ward off a troop of monkeys. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. It sounds like is that something that and I don't know if this is happening now, but like something you could do like have a, a a robot or drones take care of now as opposed to large you amounts of people. Like you're in a, a cost minimal play. Like there's not a lot of money going into this. So like, oh, gotcha. It's, it's actually more cost effective just to have humans do that. Yeah, shipping in a robot, repairing a robot. These things don't exist. So. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. All right, so you were there deriving or coming up with solutions to this type of problem. And, and what else were you working on? Yeah, and then I uh, worked up with refugee replacement, refugee repopulation. So huge population of southern refugees were living in Khartoum in the north, mm -hmm. separation of country. They have to come home. So um, imagine kid from Brooklyn has been told he needs to move back to Pennsylvania and start a farm. And kid from Brooklyn's like, I don't, uh, I don't know how to build a farm. I've been living in Brooklyn my whole life. And they're like, no, no, go to Pennsylvania and start farming. So a bunch, like 5 million people were doing this and they're like just kind of expected to know how to plant corn and raise cattle and like they're walking around in Nikes and like they don't know what they're doing. Um, so I was running programs of like spacing out crops and pest management and uh, basic sunlight thing and soil, uh, yeah, soil management using a con concept called permaculture. So how do you integrate your crops to improve all their yields. It works really well in low income places. So 
um, teachings about that. Um, and talking to refugees, needs, wants, um, where would you like the road to go? Why is your water source close enough? Just basic service provision in a place with millions of new what once were urban people being moved into agricultural areas. So at, at what point did you decide that you were ready to, I guess, move on to something else and, and what ultimately landed you at Northwestern? Yeah, there's, uh, so there was a civil war, uh, end of 2013, beginning of 2014. Um, at that point, it was like time to go home. Um, don't need, don't have the security bubble to navigate a civil war. So uh, returned to Nashville and started working with a guy at Vanderbilt, Pratim Sengupta. He builds agent-based models of ants and other things. Mm-hmm. Worked with him. And then we went off and taught uh, a middle school all about computer programming and ants um, for a year. And then that, his, his old advisor, was who I'm working with here at Northwestern. So her team said, hey, you should go work with Ori up at Northwestern. And I went and did that. Yeah, excellent. So at this all the same time, you have recently written a book, The Zen of Corona. So tell me about that. Why Why did you want to write a book and, and what is your book about? Yeah, so we're in a kind of a transitional period, right? Like I I had transition, I was transitioning myself on Zen of Corona. And, coronavirus hit. So mm-hmm. it's like, what is this new future we're running into? Um, and what are all these feelings of loss and gain and what I was hoping for, and what I'm not hoping for? Um, so this transitional moment. So what I did is I took each of those kind of feelings, feelings of like, what was going to be but is no longer or what will it be like when we get onto the other side? Um, and just wrote them down. So each one's kind of a meditation on one facet of this, going from the economics to the social relationship to what it is to be a person who wants to work creatively with others but can't any longer. Um, my, the irony of things like hero pay, like that's such a weird word, like paying someone for the danger they have to suffer. Um, so just kind of processing that, trying to bring out voices of people who don't necessarily get heard all the time. Um, the, yeah, the everyday worker. And the process to make it was reading a lot of news, taking the quotes out of there, taking the context, talking to people in that situation, and kind of crafting a poem that tries, each one kind of represents a certain facet that I thought was transitioning during the coronavirus. Yeah. So I guess since you said this is, again, focused on what's happening during the coronavirus, does that mean that it's, when did you actually start working on this and, and how was the process of, of writing it and editing it and, and, and getting it published like? Yeah, I mean, it was a fairly fast process. So I started um, February 1st, I think was the first poem as um, February 2nd. And then the, la- the last one I finished in uh, May. So, so okay. like over a hundred poems in a pretty short period of time. Yeah. And then selected, I think, a third of those, so 35, I think is the final number. But the idea was uh, I was writing individual books for individuals. So I would have this collection of poems and I'd add some or take away, add or whatever. And then when, as people on my Instagram request them, I would print the chat book mm-hmm. and annotate it, make a dedication just to that person and you know, staple it closed, put a stamp on the back of this folded over thing with some staples in it and send it to them individually. So each one, and I did that for I don't know, 70 or 80 of these. Um, 
people on Instagram just, I would like one, here you go. So, um, <laughs> and then in the front, there's a, like a dedication that says like, if you, a tip, it says tip jar, if you like this work, Venmo me five bucks or whatever. So yeah. the cost of it was totally covered by people receiving this thing, being excited, you know, like they would at a show. And the idea was like, one, the post office is going down. Two, we don't really have poetry readings anymore because so the, trying to reflect on this idea of like what was lost is this idea that you can come to my show and buy this book or come be in this experience that isn't like economic, it's more artistic. So trying to recreate this feeling without the ability to do that. So I did that for a while. Um, then I kind of stopped with um, George, George Floyd. I just kind of, when that happened, I was like, well, kind of take a step back. Um, this isn't, isn't to do with that. There's one poem in there that particularly speaks to it. It's called uh, Breathe. And it says, I wrote it before George Floyd, but it says, uh, notice how no one says just breathe during your respiratory illness, which is kind of a snarky thing to say prior to George Floyd. And then when he comes out, when that all happens, like it becomes this almost flippant thing to say. So like just this transition of the what's happening um, just move it, yeah, trying to transition, went quiet for a while and then chose to publish it and have a, come September, I think it was, have a book launch. So invite the people, do the Zoom thing, have a reading, get yeah. a person to MC it, that sort of thing. So. Um, yeah. The, um, so the, the Instagram interactions you were doing, is, it was quite clever. How did, how did you come, come across that? Did you just, it was just, posting about what you were doing and then people started interacting with you or was that planned ahead of time? How did you come up with that one? Yeah, so I mean, I was I was thinking about what is space when you don't have, like traditionally I would just, you know, go to a coffee shop or go to a local performing venue and I would read one night and they might invite me back or something like that, an open mic. Right? And I was like, okay, well, I kind of want that interaction, that kind of casual space where you can like come up to me at the table and request a book but you don't get that thing. So the idea was I'll post, now that I've created this volume and I'm gonna send it out and I'm gonna have custom for each person. Okay, how do I interact with the audience? How about I send them a piece and then I custom make a thing on their request. That way you don't run into that like death on arrival feeling that the internet sometimes has of like, cause someone's asked for it. So then I can custom, then I get like kind of a request. I can custom build a thing and imbue it with all the feelings. It's mostly gonna be people I know. Mm -hmm. um, so imbue it with as a piece of art on its own. And then, and then that, that object is interacting like I would when it gets there. So it arrives in the mail, no one gets personal mail anymore. So that's already heightening it. They open it, the first thing they see is their name in print on the first page with a dedication just to them. They're feeling emotional about it. Um, now they have a selection of things, which is kind of like a, a love letter, right? Like I've mm -hmm. created a selection of things, 50 pages, that's just to this person. And I, many people are like, just so I'm sure, you didn't send this dedication to everyone, right? Like they didn't read, this is really personal. And I'm like, no, no, I can produce these. Like yeah. the, the mass production individually. So uh, yeah, just tweaking the nose of what is mass production, space, What's the interaction? How do we send this out? Um, mm -hmm. Wonderful. So, and and you also mentioned this early on, but in I think you said February or March, you also released a VR meditation called Refuge VR. Why why did you decide to release that and work on that project early in 
I guess, yeah. 2020 or 2019. So I have a, a long-term um, artistic collaborator, collaborator Sejuno Julu, um, and she works in VR and film out in Hollywood, actress, model, uh, multi-individual. Mm -hmm. She had been working with um, a client who wanted a, a refuge uh, meditation in virtual reality, and so he, the, they sponsored it. She put together a team. Um, she brought me on as one of the developers. Um, it ended up I was the sole developer. They had a great team of um, of artists and videographers and sound designers. So they passed me the assets in all those forms, and they were like, "Well, tie these together, create volumetric VR space." Um, they had chosen the Quest because it's a really awesome individual headset. So um, those were the design, design specs. I chose to work on it because I think this idea of like using technology to not like raise addiction, but instead to provide like a peaceful space, like mm -hmm. is it's kind of like um, I don't know, it's kind of disruptive. This idea that we can create mindfulness using technology using vr it's not flashing lights or rapid movement but it's instead like the the funny part is like you go into the space and then you have to think what am i supposed to do here oh my action is to breathe my action is to let the world go from around me which is just just, just different way of approaching technology than you get to um also the experience is really beautiful um the art they chose, the actors they have, the music they have, the sound. It's just this really nice space to be in. And it's like, oh, I, I would like to put my talents to like create these nice moments in technology. And it took on new meaning as the pandemic struck. It was like, oh, we're providing a refuge where you can't go to the, like, it started taking on more meaning at that point. Um, but it was just an awesome kind of experience to go into. Wonderful. So I'm, I'm curious because you, you know, you interact in a couple of different touch points um, from academia to the arts to, to programming. How are you thinking about 2021 and how your work is going to evolve? Yeah, um, so I'm moving, I'm finishing up a dissertation this year, which means I go through the job cycle coming out of academia. Um, I'm kind of excited about the idea of developing these VR experiences more coming into 2021. I also have these like studying how people feel as they interact with these things, which is kind of developing at the moment, which is kind of an interaction between my artistic side and my developer side, right? Like imagine you, you put a painting in a room and then you could say, oh, like 92% of people had a feeling of happiness followed by disgust when they view starry night as they realize what's actually being depicted here yeah. um and you can just like put up these metrics of the interaction people are having with these objects um and it's just this admission the human world is not logic it's feelings emotions group interactions and so like getting to use number methods to study how people feel is super exciting and like doing that with designed objects is super exciting um how uh, in school why are kids are not checked in oh because they're feeling left out they're feeling confused and getting to put hard numbers up so excited about developing that um i have a couple of art projects i'm building i'm building a new game espirita you know a little sprite floating around the world it's supposed to be a slow jam um good music move around collect objects feel like it's pretty it's still getting developed but um 
excited about moving that forward and putting out another game. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, in the visual arts, I'm at a glut, so I have my walls are full, and usually I make new art to put more on the walls, and there's no more space, so I need to get rid of some to like make space for new things. Uh, so I'm focusing on my computer at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's what I find particularly interesting in our conversation is that you've you've moved seamlessly, or what appears to be seamlessly, from a lot of different industries in a lot of different parts of the world. I'm I'm curious on how you approach the idea of fear and times when you felt apprehensive about either trying a new job or moving to a new part of the world or, or any of this and how you thought about your next move and push past the parts where you felt fearful. Hmm. I don't think I have much fear. I think I have too high of a risk tolerance and that gets me into trouble. Uh, um, so like, for instance, in South Sudan, at one point, um, a group of farmers approached me at the border between Sudan and South Sudan. And we're having a meeting about where to put a road. And they're like, but let me tell you about this really beautiful agricultural land we could develop with you in money. And I was like, okay. So we get in the car and we start driving. And I notice as we're driving, more men with guns. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then I notice the poles like, like, hey, Muhammad, what are you talking about, Kit? And they just keep driving. Mm-hmm. We get out to the forest, we get out, we take some pictures. It is very beautiful agricultural land, little stream, very idyllic. And you're just wondering, why isn't this a farm? It's weird. Start to down. And I haven't once thought, no apprehension, I have no fear in what I'm doing. Yeah. Because um, I haven't registered that this is a really bad idea. Um, then two men jump out of the woods, they shoot their Kalashnikovs at the car. So I'm driving in the Land Rover and I'm just like, as I slip under the dashboard, hoping that's going to protect me. Mm-hmm. The car stops and then they just jump in the back and they start laughing with the guys in the back. And I ask like, what's going on? It's like, oh, that's how you get a ride here. So now there's two men, random men with guns in the back of my car. <laughs> We're driving back to the forest. You know, my fear has eaten up a little, but I've like pushed it down again. I'm like, okay, this isn't such a problem. Maybe that is how you get a ride here. Um, we approach where those little holes were, but we're not quite there yet. The two men in the back say, oh, we need to get out. And we're like, okay, they get out, go another like 25 feet. And 300 men with guns have swarmed out of the forest. Apparently those are foxholes. Um, all pointed at the car. And they start yelling at me in Arabic. I basically get, how dare you invade my country? So they take me into prison with the guys in my car and... It turns out what I had done is cross the border into Sudan and then come back at high speed back into South Sudan, which is like how the war happened. So there's some understandable fear of that. Um, But it still hasn't registered in my very slow brain that I should be fearful. So they take me in front of the general. So they say, how dare you do that? We're taking your car as punishment. All of you are going to be in jail for a week. And instead of being afraid, I just start yelling at the man, like, how dare you? Like we're an organization of aid, we're here to help you. We're trying to like, I get indignant instead of fearful. Um, And then he's like, okay, fine, little pissy wasp person. You're being very stingy, Uh, go away. And so he lets me leave. What he should have done is like put me in prison and taken my car for invading and crossing into the militarized zone. 
And only like a couple hours later, I do I realize like that was bad. Like that was my bad. <laughs> I shouldn't have been there. I almost got a bunch of people shot, including myself. Um, so yeah, I mean, my older brother always describes me as bullheaded. He'll like watch me fall on my face and he'll like, but then you just get up and you do it again. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't really know. Uh, maybe, yeah, it's, I think there's something missing in like the fear portion <laughs> of my brain. Sure. So it sounds like this has just been how you've operated since you were a kid, just kind of have this fearlessness about you. Is that, is that a safe yeah. assumption? And stupidity and fearlessness. Kind sure. Of <laughs> Excellent. All right. So with, with everything that you have done and experienced over these years, what would you say has been the best advice that you ever received? Mm. The best advice I ever received was kind of, it was by my advisor, Tabitha Ewing at Bard. Um, and she, it was about writing, but I think it applies to a lot of things. And it was when you're, when you're writing, this isn't, I had given her a piece of writing that was pretty meta. It was all in the voice of some ancient person. There wasn't a lot of, it was pretty artistic. It, she was like, I just need a history paper. Here's what you need to do. When you're writing, or when you're doing anything, do what you're gonna do. Tell me why you did what you're gonna do and then explain why that matters to the person you're trying to talk to. And it's like, that, that's kind of the answer to a lot of things. You make a piece of art, like, do the thing you're gonna do now. Explain then all the all the weird stuff that goes around a piece of art. Explain why you did that, and then think about the person who needs to receive that and like twink it for that other person. And it's true for writing. It's true for music. It's true for academic writing, especially. You have in academic writing, you add one part. Tell them what you're going to do. Do what you're gonna do. Tell them what you told them. Tell them why you told them. There's just one more layer, but it's the same process. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Kit, thank you so much uh, for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it and, and hearing your stories. This is absolutely fantastic. If the listeners would like to buy your book or follow you online, where are the best places they can go to do all of that? You can find me at kitcmartin.com or at kitcmartin on Instagram or at kitcmartin on Twitter. So kitcmartin across domains. Perfect. Well, then I will, I'll put the links in the show notes so they can click right through. Uh, well, again, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. You as well. Thanks, Ori. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Black Bones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.